Revelation chapter number 2, verse 18. We are continuing on in our series through the book of Revelation. We're in the passage that looks at the seven churches of Asia Minor. We've looked at Ephesus, which was indeed a drifting church. We've looked at, uh, <coughs> excuse me, we've looked at uh, Smyrna, um, which was a delightful church. We've looked at Pergamos which was a, can I remember? <laughs> can you remember? A divided church. Yeah, compromise, divided, same thing. We're sticking with the Ds. Tonight we're going to look at Thyatira, which we will call a depraved church of the depraved church. So let's have a look at it. Revelation chapter number 2, we'll pick up in verse number 18, and we'll read to verse number 29. This is the, the longest letter, I believe, of all these letters to the churches. And... Uh, it is the smallest church that's represented, and the Lord has a lot to say. So, Revelation chapter number 2, verse 18, and the word of God reads this. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works and charity and service and faith, and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I give her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and the hearts, and I will give unto every one according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. But that which ye have already, sorry, but that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my words until the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter. They shall be broken into shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's just pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening. And Lord, we do want to hear what you say unto the churches. And Lord, we want to examine your word as you've read it to that church all those years ago. And we want to see what we can apply in our time and day and age. The great lessons that you have to teach in terms of spiritual condition. And Lord, help us to learn and heed the warnings that are in there that, Lord, we are to live according to your word. As individuals, but as a church body, we are to be surrendered to our head, to our chief, to our captain. And Lord, your warnings are great for those that have your name, represent your name. And Lord, we have great responsibility and we have great privilege. And with that comes accountability. And Lord, you have said you will judge your churches and then the judgment begins at the house of God. So Lord, I pray you would help us as your people to be all that we're called to be. Help us to see the warnings that are given from your very mouth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me see. Can you flick, just click the, uh, the program so that I can answer? Yeah, that'll be fine. That's fine, that'll work now. Right, here we are. We're getting around Asia, Asia Minor. Uh, we started at Ephesus, um, the, the Drifting Church. We went to Smyrna, a uh, delightful church. We went to Pergamon, the Divided Church. We're now in Thyatira. We're coming around the postal route, as, as I told you, and we're working our way down. Now, as I've said, that uh, Thyatira was the, the uh, smallest church that's represented here um, in, in terms of um, it, its size or its... Um, uh, place of prestige, if you like, through the ages. Um, also, the, the town itself uh, wasn't anything special because we've looked at 
uh, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamon and indeed they all had uh, pride of place within Asia Minor they all had their roles we looked at Pergamos last week didn't we and how that it was the judicial capital of the area well Thyatira uh, isn't much if, if, if uh, Pergamon is the judicial capital with all the big wigs Thyatira is where the working class man is it's a worker's place um, it's full of labour unions or guilds you'll find uh, and um, they were known for their work ethic and what they did and, and their output so they're, they're workers rather than being judicial or uh, bankers and financiers as you'll find in Smyrna and, and Ephesus uh, these guys were uh, workers as I said there were many guilds or, or you know, early labour unions we'll call them operating in that area. Uh, Homer, in his writings, he speaks that they were known for uh, their dyeing of red and purple cloth as being a characteristic of the city. One of the other characteristics of the city was uh, their metalwork, brass, bronze, and other metals. And then, as I've said, the the manufacture of red and purple cloth. Um, And you'll find this in ancient history, several kind of inscriptions and things referencing uh, Thyatira as a place that that uh, this trade came from. So we know this as well from Bible. So if we go to Acts chapter number 16, we'll have a quick look at Lydia. It might have rang a bell already. So um, Acts chapter 16. This is in Philippi when Paul brought the gospel. Uh, verse 12 and from thence to Philippi which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia so now we're in Greece um, quite a bit away from uh, where we are in Thyatira Um, verse 13 on the Sabbath he went out of the city by the river where was wont to be made and we sat down and spake unto the woman which was sorted hither a certain woman named Lydia a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira this is where Lydia's from and she's a seller of purple. And that's, that's the trade of that city. And of course, um, we don't have time to look into it, that, it, it, that purple is, is a color that um, takes a lot of investment to get and uh, was a very pride of uh, place type of color, worth a lot of money. So anyway, so Lydia's down in, in Philippi, or up in Philippi, um, whatever way you want to look at it. And Paul brings the gospel to her. And tradition tells us that she took the gospel back to Thyatira. And uh, began to proclaim the good news there. So um, that's what we know a little bit about uh, Thyatira. Um, we know that they are known for their um, selling of purple or scarlet. Again, as I've said at the start, each one of these churches is a literal church, a literal body of people. So we always have to remember in that context that there's people that are listening to this letter just like us and are are hearing it for the first time that we're there. Uh, The second thing is that I said that they all point to a spiritual condition. You'll see different spiritual conditions that the Lord deals with, and that can happen to any church, and some church can have multiple uh, of these um, conditions at once. You know, Ephesus, for example, they were guilty of leaving their first love, and that that is a spiritual condition we suffer from. Um, But then the third thing I said is that they do, I believe, and, and, you know, it's not a hill that I'll die on, but I do think it paints a picture of church history. And we've been building on, we've gone through the early church, the, ap- the apostolic church, the early church. Uh, we looked at um, the persecuted church. And we had looked at um, those 10 Roman rulers. And then when, last week we looked at really when, when Ro- Roman Catholicism starts to come in with, with Constantine. And we said it was a divided church and church and state started to marry. Um, well, this period of church history takes us on from that. And this is Roman Catholicism, I believe, in full flight. This is the, the dark ages, if you like, of, of church uh, history. And it's of no coincidence to me, I don't think there's any coincidence in Scripture, that we get to this place that references this point in church history, I believe. Like I say, I wouldn't be dogmatic on it, but I do believe it strongly suggests that, that it's a place that here is a place that's known for purple and scarlet, which is, of course, uh, what is used of the clergy throughout Rome in history. It's also referenced in Revelation chapter 17. Turn there. We'll get there um, later in our studies at some point. But Revelation 17, verse 3 to 5. Colors are important in Scripture. Numbers are important. Colors are important. 
Revelation 17, verse 3. And so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her head was... Uh, on her forehead was a name written mystery Babylon the great the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth and you say well who's that we'll deal with that when we get there but (laughs) time will come but you know these are the colours of Rome scarlet and purple and these are the colours of Thyatira and I do believe it points us to that period in church history where Roman Catholicism was in full flight and we're going to see some other reasons why I believe it points there we're not just going to leave it there so what else do we know about uh, this place Um, well unlike like the other uh, Pergamon and Smyrna it wasn't really particularly um, badly given over to idol worship as the other ones were um, you know, it wasn't an important religious centre. Like I said, it was a working place. You know, it, it was the Stoke-on-Trent. It was the factories. It was the working uh, place um, where people got on with it. So they didn't have any strong devotion like we looked at last week with Pergamon who had uh, Caesar worship in there and all sorts. So they didn't have any of that. They had the primary god that was worshipped was uh, the Greek sun god Apollo. Um, very few Torah-observant Jews in Thyatira at the time that the church was there. So really, there wasn't much trouble from a persecution point of view at the time when, when this was written. The problem with this church was not that it faced persecution from without. The problem with this church was that there was internal compromise, and we're going to see that. And, that, and that's, that's really Roman Catholicism in full flight. Roman Catholicism has never really been persecuted. It's been a persecutor, but it's never really been persecuted. Um, so that's never been a problem for it. It's been the internal compromise, the doctrinal compromise. And uh, Thyatira, um, the word itself comes from two words, two uh, Greek words meaning sacrifice and continual. And again, now, you know, it's not, this is not me making magic leaps at this, honestly. This is not here. Uh, it's not, you know, I'm always, I'm always cautious when I, when, especially when I'm teaching on this stuff, um, that I'm from Northern Ireland. And people can say, there goes the angry Protestant again. He's, <laughs> he's at his work making this stuff up. And I'm not making this stuff up. That's what, the, that's what the word means. You can go and look at this yourself. And, you know, if you look at Roman Catholicism, one of the greatest heresies of it, without a shadow of a doubt, and, and you know, I don't mean uh, this to upset or offend, but this is the truth, is that they sacrifice Christ over and over Again, it's a continual sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Mass is. And uh, that's what the word Thyatira means. It means uh, the two words coming together. It means sacrifice and continual. And we see that in Rome. Every time you see the monstrance lifted up, every time you see the priest do his, 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 his smells and his bells and all his bed, they are sacrificing Christ again. You say, well, what? You know, they don't really mean that. Yes, they do. That the, 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 the transubstantiation is, is the theological term. Um, that the, the wafer becomes the actual body of Christ. So, number one, it's cannibalism. And then secondly, the, 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 the grape juice of the wine becomes the actual blood of Christ. And, and they sacrifice him anew. That's why when you see in, in the Catholic Church, you'll see Christ on that cross. Christ is not on the cross. He's not on the cross. Sacrifice once for all forever. Done, finished, final, telelestia, paid in full. That word in the Greek, telelestia, it, it used to be used of prisoners that were pardoned and set free and they were given a letter that would say that they were uh, pardoned from all their sins, that they could never be tried again for any of their crimes and they had this little uh, note that would say and written on it would have been those words, telelestia, paid in full, it's done. Well, Roman Catholicism takes that sheet puts it away and says, let's do it again, let's do it again, let's do it again. Sacrificing our Lord over and over again. And really, when you take this to, to, to his extreme, you know, you have to think about it. It's the perpetual agony of the Lord Jesus Christ. The perpetual suffering of the Lord for us. 
But our Lord's not the sufferer anymore. He's the sovereign Lord, risen, seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. So, you know, the Mass is, 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 is absolutely awful. There's no two ways about it. We can't sidestep this issue and say, well, you know, they, they, it's, it's, you know it's, it's okay. They, they're mean, they mean well by it. That's not the point. It's what it teaches, what it stands for, and what it means. So the name Thyatira, it means sacrifice and continual, and we'll see that in Rome today. Um, what about the description of Christ? I have said to you that every time we, we get into one of these new letters, the Lord will refer back to Revelation chapter number 1 and pull out something that he, he talks about there. So we have this in Revelation 2, verse 18. Where the Lord introduces himself to the church and he says, Unto the angel or pastor of the church at Thyatira, write, These things saith the Son of God, who has eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. And so again, the Lord uses the description and he uses it purposefully. So what's going on here? Um, well, first of all, if you look back at Revelation chapter number 1, um, verse 13, where... Jesus, in his revealing or his unveiling, Revelation 1.13, says, In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Um, we just read Revelation 2.18. This time it's the Son of God. So, why do you think that the Lord introduces himself as the Son of God? Number one, to, to that church locally. But more importantly, if this is as I'm taking it to be, that is pointing us to a period of, of, of Roman Catholicism in full flight, why would you think that the Lord would introduce himself here as the Son of God and not the Son of Man? Any ideas? Think about Roman Catholicism. What's important in Rome? Hmm, nearly? Oh, oh. Mm. Mary. Mary. Who's worshipped in Rome? Mary. 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 Mariology is, is, is a huge doctrine in Rome, and it's another one of Rome's great false teaching. Um, so here Jesus introduces himself as, as the Son of God because, you know, Rome would make him the Son of the Human Mother and leave him in that position. And in fact, there are many in Rome will, 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 will reference Mary as a higher authority than the Lord. But Jesus introduces himself as the Son of God. He elevates himself above Mary, not below her. Mary in Rome is referenced as the Queen of Heaven and the Mother of God. That's never a, a biblical reference. That's a Roman traditional reference. So the Lord introduces himself, makes it clear he is the son of God. Yes, he's the son of man, 100% uh, man. His dead is, is humanity, but also he is the son of God. He is the, the, the uh, only begotten, and he introduces himself as such. He also says, um, these things saith the son of God who hath eyes like flame unto fire. Again, that talks about his all-knowing eye. He, he sees everything. Hebrews 4.13 tells us that also. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. He sees it all. And then he goes on to say that he has feet like fine brass. And again, I said to you that Thyatira was, was one of the trades in there, was the metalwork, and brass was important. In Scripture, you will see brass as a reference to, to judgment. You'll see it when the um, uh, northern kingdom of Israel is getting carried off into, into judgment. You'll see brass mentioned all the time. When you get to the tabernacle and you come to the entrance of the tabernacle, the first thing you're, you're greeted with is the brazen altar, that altar of sacrifice, and it's bronze because it speaks to the judgment of sacrifice. The next piece of furniture you're, you're greeted with is the, uh, the great bull laver that is bronze or brass again. 
And that speaks of the judgment of sin in our lives, not the penalty of it, but the practice of it. It deals with sanctification. This is the pathway, the progress of what the Lord laid down in Leviticus. It is, is, is the way to go. It's, it teaches so much. The tabernacle is phenomenal in what it teaches. There was a uh, Boris and Emily shared the verse this morning, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's the tabernacle. If that verse could be a structure, it would be the tabernacle. I am the way. You have to come through the gate. You have to come to the place of sacrifice. You have to go through sanctification. And those things are brass. They speak of judgment. But when that's done and you're clean, you go into uh, uh, the holy place where you have the other three elements that are gold. There's no brass inside. Because it's deity and it speaks about your fellowship, your life. I am the way, the truth, the life. And the very last bit, the holy of holies, Shekinah glory, presence of God. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The tabernacle is just an absolute, if you could write it in letters in the desert, it would say Jesus. It would say Jesus. So here the Lord says, his feet are like fine brass, speaking of his judgment and his authority. And again, that's important because when we get to uh, dealing, especially with Rome, if you, you know, if you spend any time um, kind of doing any apologetics with anybody that's steeped in Romanism, the first thing they will do is they'll point to tradition or the church. You'll go to the word of God and they'll say, well, church or tradition. So it's important the Lord says, I see you all, I'm judge, I'm the son of God, I'm sovereign, I'm the authority. So that's a little bit of background. And uh, let me see, there we go. Right, let's get into it and get through. So we're, we're looking at the exact same criteria as all the other churches. And first of all, we're going to look at the commendation. The Lord always starts off, he starts off with the good news before he gets to the bad news. Uh, so Revelation 2.19 And the Lord says to the church at Thyatira I know thy works and thy charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. So the first thing we notice there is the Lord again he knows and he says I know thy works but not only does he say it once he says it twice. He says it twice. And um, certainly this church was an active church in their works uh, their works were coupled with charity or love, that's what it says there, and service and faith. So again, um, their love for human, humanity was prevalent. They, they were a church that worked. Remember I told you, it's a, it's a, it's a place of workers, you know, working class folk. And they um, went about the work and the Lord commends them for their charity for, towards uh, others, for their service, um, uh, for their ministry. It says for their faith, you know, they were loyal, dependable. Um, you know, although many, many, many of the members, when you look at Roman Catholicism, were held in darkness, there were many in there that were born again, that were, um, that's the only place they had, you know, and, and they, a lot of them came out of it. A lot of them went and, and joined some of the remnants. A lot of them stayed in and, and started to make a difference. A lot of the reformers obviously came out of Rome didn't they? Um, you know, we think of uh, Wycliffe, the Morning Star, the Reformation. So there were faithful ones in there. And again, the Lord uh, commands them and he commands them on their patience. And, you know, it does take patience to be in a place where, where, where there is no true doctrine being taught, as it were, where things are being compromised, where things are, 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 are falling away and drifting away. And you may have been in a church like that. And it's hard. It's difficult and it takes patience. Stay the course. And the Lord commands him on it. And he says again there at the end of verse 19 that the last to be more than the first referencing their works. So there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's an indication that there's a growth in their works. That they're doing more of that type of stuff. Um, and, and you know that's Roman Catholicism's mark with that. Great humanitarian works. You cannot deny it. You cannot deny it. You just look at history and you'll see it. You know... Uh, hospitals, orphanages, um, tremendous works from a human, humanitarian perspective. But the problem wasn't that the, the, the works that they were doing, it was the apostasy that was growing alongside the works that they were doing. So, you know, the Lord doesn't leave it there. He um, moves then from what he commends them for to what he condemns them for. And verse 20, 
notwithstanding. And you know, I just, I, I, I know we do that, I do this every Sunday night, but I do love this. Because again, I always try and put myself in the position of the people that are hearing this for the first time. And, you know, so now, what, what is this? The fourth church, right? So this is the fourth church. And you've listened, and you've, you, you, know, you haven't picked up a Bible to read it before the person that's reading it from the front has read it. So you're listening to it for the first time. You're gathered there, these people, and you've listened to all these churches, and you're like, oh, you know, when you're like waiting for your report, and you don't know what way it's going to go, but you know that you, you know, you're hoping you've done better than the last guy, or you know, the, the Lord's kind of tore in to the church at Pergamum. And then hopefully we'll get a better thing. Starts off really well, and you're like, yes. And then you hear those words, notwithstanding. And you're like, oh, no. Here we go. And the Lord says, I have a few things against thee. He says, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit fornications, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. So here the Lord is going to condemn and he is going to condemn sternly and the condemnation takes uh, two forms number one christ condemned them because they permitted a false teacher that brings condemnation for the lord you let a false teacher in and you know we've been we've been hammering that point as we've been going along in these churches that it's very important that that uh, you know as pastor of this church that i keep up the work that was done before to make sure that we don't allow false teachers into the church and um the Lord condemns them because they permitted this. He says, Because thou hast sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants. You know, he says, This is what the Lord says. You've allowed it. You've seen it. And you have allowed it. And because of that, I am judging you. You should have known better. You should have stayed true to my word. You shouldn't have suffered her. You shouldn't have allowed her in. And Christ condemns him for it. So Christ condemns them because they uh, allowed her in. Verse 21, then he condemns her because she didn't repent. And I give her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. So now we're dealing with Jezebel. And again, that name is carried through the ages. They're names, biblical names. You know, Judas is one. Um, you know, uh, Jezebel is another. It just carries a connotation, doesn't it, with it? It all, it always has. And so we're, you know, we're going back to the Old Testament. We know that we're getting an Old Testament picture. And of course, the Old Testament, when we look through the history of Israel and we hist- history of the worship of the one true God, we see it's really it's a checkered past, isn't it? And uh, you know, there there are good periods, there's bad periods. Um, you know. David, then Solomon, and then the kingdom's divided, and things really go to pot uh, after that. But in the division of the kingdom, we have, um, you know, this this um, corrupt system of worship that comes in, and and that's brought in when Jeroboam sets up the golden calf up and down. And but the thing is, what we have to understand there, it, it's that what's going on there with Jeroboam is a corruption of true worship. It's corruption of true worship. And, and what, what uh, Jeroboam's doing, it's political, but he's trying to counterfeit and copy and make it as close as uh, true worship, but a little bit different. Let's turn there. Let's have a look. First Kings chapter 12. And, and the reason I'm, I'm doing this is to highlight exactly what we're dealing with when we're talking about Jezebel. Um, because Jezebel is not corruption of true worship. It's something different. Um, if you go to 1 Kings, chapter 12, and we'll see what Jeroboam was doing. 1 Kings, chapter 12, excuse me, verse 25. It says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem and Mount Ephraim, and built uh, Penuel, and Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David, if this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then shall the heart of this people turn again unto the Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to uh, Rehoboam, king of Judah. 
Whereupon the king took counsel, made two calves of gold, said unto them, It's too much for you to go unto Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he sent one in Bethel, and he put the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he made a house of the high places, made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, Unto the feast that is in Judah, so he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made, and in placed in Bethel the priests of the high place which he made. So he offered them upon the altar which he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel. He offered upon the altar and burnt incense. So what Jeroboam's doing is. He's worried about losing his power base. And because of that, he sets up this corrupt form of worship in Dan. And he sets up a high place and he sets up his own Levitical system of, 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 of priesthoods, although he didn't have to be a Levite for his system. And it was more convenient worship. But it was, it was a corrupt version of the worship that was going on in Jerusalem that was his whole goal that he had to make it like that so that they would stay and so that they would do that but when Jezebel comes along it's something different it's not a, a corruption of true worship it's it's bringing in worship of false gods it's bringing in worship of a pagan origin into the mix let's go on in 1 Kings chapter 16 verse 29 1 Kings 16, verse 29. In the thirty and eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass, as it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, the king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal that he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. And what's come in here is, is complete idolatry. It's not even a perversion of true worship. It's complete idolatry. And that's what Jezebel is associated with. And this kindled the anger of the Lord. Absolutely it did. And when we get to Revelation chapter number 2, the Lord's anger is kindled against that church also because they have allowed this idolatry into the church. And because the idolatry is allowed into the church, the Lord says straight after it's idolatry and it's fornication. They come hand in hand. When immorality comes with idolatry, there's no doubt about it. In Jeroboam's perversion of the true religion, there was still morality. But when Jezebel came in and she brought in Baal worship, immorality ran rife and plagued the people of Israel ever after. The worship of Baal was synonymous with sexual immorality. Synonymous. And Jezebel is associated with bringing this into Israel of old and the Lord references here and references again, I think, the same type of false teaching. And he condemns the church for allowing it, for suffering it. So Jezebel is a very real picture of what the dark ages in the church really was. And you don't have to spend too much time. We may do it at some point, have a look at the cults and stuff, on a, maybe on a Wednesday night or something. But you don't have to look too far and you will see just the idolatry that comes into what is supposedly the body of Christ is absolutely rife. At Roman Catholicism, it's full of idolatry. It's full of it. And, and to, just to the extremes. And, and, you know, when you actually start to dig and you start to look, it really is just a litany of idolatry. And, you know, uh, a worship that was brought in 
as I've said, when Constantine came along and, and he had this problem, right? I want to I want to merge Christianity and, and and Romanism and all that's in there and all their pagan practices. How do I do it? I just create this new thing, and that's what Roman Catholicism was. And and Jezebel is associated with that type of teaching. So the church in the Dark Ages really, truly, honestly bears very little resemblance to the true body of Christ. There are believers there, absolutely. There's a remnant there, absolutely. But they are slaughtered. They're massacred for their faith and their stand throughout those ages. So Jezebel and her teaching and everything in it, and there's nothing good there. And uh, again, don't, don't shoot me here, but whenever a woman is used to convey uh, any religious teaching in Scripture, it always parallels with false religion. <laughs> so again, this is, not, this is not, don't shoot me, this is, this is Scripture, this is Scripture. You'll find it, you'll find it. it, it's there. We looked at it in Revelation a bit earlier on, didn't we? Uh, turn to Matthew 13, verse 33. We'll see it there. Um, Matthew 13, I, Matthew 13 is one of my favorite portions of, of prophetic scripture um, because I do like prophecy um, but Matthew 13 is, is the most butchered portion of scripture by many Bible teachers that I've ever seen absolutely trounced on um, and all sorts of, of false interpretations are, are given but let's turn to verse 33 we're dealing here with the parable of the leaven and it says in verse 33, another parable spake he unto them, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. And in the context of this, we don't have the time to do it all, but this is not the good news of the gospel going in and being spread. This is false teaching. Leaven is always to do with sin or sinful practices. There is only one exception to that in the way of offering that is found in Leviticus, and there's a reason for that. But every other time you find the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the leaven of hypocrisy, it's a picture of sin. And here we find who's putting the sin in there, who's putting the false teaching in there. It's the woman. So, And again, Revelation. 17 we looked at it also so despite the 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 the, um virtues of the church at Thyatira and there was the Lord did command them there wasn't completely blank um it wasn't enough that they had accomplished a lot it wasn't enough that they'd done works and works are never enough now the church should be doing work I absolutely agree with that you know I'm not one of these people that says you know there should be no type of social action within a church there should be it should be. Um, and that's a principle you'll find in Scripture. You look in the Old Testament, you will find that, that uh, the elect of God, Israel, were commanded to look after the poor. They were commanded to, you know, they have practices that, that, that dealt with that. And they were a very uh, marked democratic people that did look after those that were uh, down and out. And we're to do that. There's no doubt about that. But that should never be our focus. Our focus is the gospel. Our focus is that doctrinal purity and truth that allows us to go and do social action but social action based on the mission of Christ not social action for social action's sake and when you look at Rome that's what it does so much social action but the gospel's not there so the Lord's saying to this church I believe you know I know your works I know your uh, uh, labors. I know you've been faithful. I know you've been patient. I know your works are growing. But here's what I have against you. You've allowed false teachers in. And the worst form of false teaching. You've allowed idolatry to be taught to the body. And the Lord's having none of that. None of it. So he condemns them. What's the correction? You should have guessed it by now. Verse 21, repent, repent. The opportunity to repent was given, but it wasn't taken. And, you know, the simple truth is, you know, when things are wrong with the Lord, repentance is the only way to make things right. It's the only way. It's the biblical way. It begins with repentance. That turning, that changing. Turning from your direction to the Lord. It has to be done at the moment of salvation. It's repentance. You're turning. 
I love this little illustration, you know, that, you know, and, and the Lord uses this a lot, that, you know, he, he's light, and he is. And, you know, when we turn to him, we see the light of his glory and his countenance shine upon us. But when we're in our sin, we don't see the light of God. We're, we're in our own direction. David, in the Psalm, Psalm 51, he says, my sin is ever before me. And if you think about this, if the light source is behind you and you're walking your own way, uh, what can you see in front of you? Nothing but your shadow. When you turn to the light, it's behind you. That's repentance. That's repentance. So you walk in your sins, that's, that's you. And you're, you, all you can see is yourself. And David says, my sin is ever before me. But then he turns to the Lord and the, ter- the Lord washes him and cleanses him. And your sin's behind you. The shadow is cast behind you. Turn to the Lord. It begins with repentance. Any church, any message, any preacher that preaches you can get right without repentance is wrong. He's wrong. Because that's what the Lord asks for. He needs you to turn to him and away from your own way. But no repentance came from this woman. No repentance has come from Rome throughout its history. And no repentance means judgment. Look at verse 22. Behold, I will cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Verse 23. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he that searches the reins and the hearts. I will give every one of you according to your works. That's three times works mentioned in that passage of scripture three times it's mentioned twice it's about the church and all the works that they do and then once the lord says you will receive according to your works you'll reap what you sow what's the challenge the challenge is verse 24 but unto you i say and unto the rest in thyatira as many as have not thus, not this doctrine, which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. So to the true believers, the Lord says, I am going to impose no other burden on you, verse 25, but that which you already uh, ye have already, hold fast till I come. Now the word uh, for hold fast there in the Greek is kratos, and it means um, that it, 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 it gives a degree of difficulty. To the hanging on. And it doesn't mean it's like a, you know, just hang on. It's, you know, as if you're hanging from, from, a, from a height, hanging on to a branch. Hang on, hold on. It's going to take energy. It's going to take effort. Hold on. And it, it does take effort and energy to bear the burden of false teaching, especially in those days when, when really you'd nowhere else to go. And, and if you speak up, you're the one that's getting uh, ridiculed and you're the one that's getting put down and you're the one that's getting ostracized. And some people have, have been in places where they've been in churches that they know something's not right, but they don't have anywhere else to go and they have to grin and they have to bear it. And the Lord's saying to those people that were caught up through the ages in Rome, he's saying, hold fast, but it's not going to be easy. Hold on. And he says, you know, continuing in your faithfulness is going to be enough. That's going to be a hard enough task for you. And so it was for those in those dark ages. Just to hold on to the basic truths of the gospel. And to stand up against a church that was so powerful and so mighty. And could ruin your life in one word. It could just take your life and turn it upside down. Where you couldn't work, you couldn't earn, you couldn't function. To hold on to the gospel truth in those times was a difficult thing. And the Lord says, that's all I need from you. Faithful people, be faithful. And what a word that is for the church of Thyatira. And what a word for that is for the church at Milton. Let's just hold on, you know. And, and sometimes it's difficult. Honestly, as a, as a pastor, the the... The, the attacks theologically now are, are everywhere. Everywhere. Every time I go on the Facebook, there's some other new teaching or new doctrine. And like you just seem to defend every little thing you have to fight for. Every bit of ground you have to stand in your fight. And you have to hold on. And it takes effort. And it takes fight. And it takes courage. And it takes uh, one to stand in the power and strength of the Lord. But it's worth it because the Lord says, hold on. I know it's going to be hard. He knows. 
And he says, hold on. Hold fast. And that was the challenge. The Thyatira, the challenge for us. Then the Lord leaves him with some comfort. And again, I thank the Lord that he does leave with, with comfort. Verse 26. Is he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Vessels of a potter shall be broken to shivers, even I have received of my father. I will give him the morning star. So, for the sake of time, we need to rush on a little bit. But the promise here, the comfort is twofold. Once you notice, it's twofold. First of all, the Lord says, I'll give you power over the nations. To he that overcometh, I'll give you uh, power of the nations, he that overcomes and keeps my works to the end. Now again, is this a works-based salvation that the Lord's teaching? Absolutely not, because Scripture doesn't teach that. So what is he teaching? Well, number one, who are those that overcometh? I've looked at this every week, pretty much. 1 John 5, 4-5. to I'll read it to you. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. So the overcomers are those that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're saved, you're an overcomer, that's done. And then he goes on to say, and, so this is an extra bit, and uh, keepeth my works to the end. And really, what's he talking about? It's, it's simply this. In the context, he's saying, stay faithful, hold fast. Those that keep my words, those that keep my works till the end. And this is your faithfulness. And your faithfulness in this life will be rewarded. And that's what the Lord says. Your faithfulness will be rewarded. Why? Because I will give you power over the nations. This is the reward of the believers that are faithful in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not salvation. This is your reward for service in the millennial kingdom. And you can look at this, and again, we don't have time. We're running on a little bit uh, tonight. But you can see that, um, that you know, in, in saints of the church age are rewarded in the kingdom. What you do here doesn't affect your salvation, but it will affect your rewards. It will affect your rewards. And God will dish out according to people's works. What you've done in him will be rewarded. And the more you've done in him will reflect your position you have with him in the kingdom. You'll, you'll see this throughout scripture. And the two most emphasized uh, facets of that, of the saints, are as priests and kings. And we're going to rule and reign as priests and kings with the Lord in the New Jerusalem. We're going to judge the angels. You can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. So the Lord here, he's not saying that if you endure to the end, you'll be saved. He's saying if you believe in me, you're an overcomer, you're saved. But if you, you know, uh, serve me, you'll be rewarded. One of those rewards is you'll have power over the nations. And again, we don't have the time to look at it. We will look at the kingdom a little bit further on uh, when we get there. So we will be rewarded, and that's what the Lord has given in comfort. And then he says in verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. And of course, the morning star is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Revelation 22, verse 16 says this, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Because possession of true faith is always always associated with the possession of the true God. And the Lord himself says, I will give you the morning star. He will give himself to those faithful believers. So there we have it, the church at Thyatira. And again, this is the longest letter. Maybe that's why it took us a little bit longer this evening. The longest letter of the seven, even though it's addressed to the church in the smallest of the seven uh, cities and it has an important message for us today we're not to tolerate compromise in any way unfortunately that is not the message of the world today it's just not tolerance has become a, a very muddied word in what it actually means tolerance used to mean that you could agree to disagree and as long as somebody wasn't breaking the law with what they were doing then fine do what you want if that's what you believe then i'll tolerate it but now tolerance has changed. Tolerance has, has changed where we're, we're not allowed uh, to disagree. And tolerance means we have to accept. That's not tolerance. That's not tolerance. And we live in that world today. And we live in a world where 
deviant behaviors are being painted as normal. And if we say anything about it, then we're intolerant. We're not allowed to disagree. And as long as you agree with everything, as long as you're synchristic, as long as uh, you just go with the flow, uh, then you're all right. But the minute you want to speak up and you want to talk about absolute truths in any way, shape or fashion, then you are stood out as a bigot, as, as, as one who is uh, uh, intolerant, an extremist, because you believe in absolutes. Culture that tolerates evil calls disagreements phobias. Taking a stand is considered hate. Conviction is seen as fanaticism. Sound biblical doctrine is seen as discrimination. And that's the church as a whole today. It compromises in these values. That wants to get along with everybody. That wants everybody to just do their own thing. And it doesn't matter what God says. It doesn't matter what the absolute truth is. It's one for all and all for one. Do what you want. Whatever, whatever floats your boat. And the minute you say, well, no, God doesn't, doesn't agree with that. This is what the Bible says. The, the, the lot is cast. The fingers are pointed. And you're put in a corner as an extremist, a fanatic, a lunatic, and a Bible basher. That's what happens when compromise is allowed in. It takes us down a path where we're not only to the secular world want you to do this, but you've got a large portion of Christendom that is in that same camp and is turning and pointing the finger at those that believe in biblical doctrine. That's why we must, we must, church, stand up for truth. We must stand up for truth. And the Lord says, I know your faithfulness. Be faithful. Hold fast. And I know it's going to be hard, but hold fast. And I will give you the reward. And I will give you myself the morning star. And one day you'll forever be with me. Until that time, church, hold fast and hold on to him. For he is worthy. Amen?